Once again, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be here. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. This message now concludes one of the most remarkable Saturday afternoons in history. Because from chapter 15, in fact from chapter 14, right, it starts on chapter 14 verse 1, and as it came to pass he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day. That, this is one Saturday afternoon, all the way through to the end of chapter 16. Quite a remarkable evening, afternoon, to, uh, to, to have been there, to have heard these things. Quite, a, quite an amazing time. So Luke has spent a very large amount of time on this particular day. And we are dealing now with Luke 16 from verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Story of the rich man and Lazarus. One of the uh, best known, but one of also frequently misunderstood messages that you find in Scripture. So before we go any further, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now you might open our eyes and our hearts and our minds. Lord, that we might see, we might perceive, we might understand the message that you have for us this day in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably the most common question that is asked about this passage is, is it a parable? Is it a parable? Before you can ask that question, you actually have to ask another question. What is a parable? Before you, you go to something and say, well, this is that, you have to say, well, what is it that you're, look, you're looking at? So what is a parable? Now, a parable is frequently described, and to be honest, fairly accurately, as a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Think of the parables we know and we understand. A sower went forth to sow. Some of the seed grew, some didn't, and that which grew yielded varying amounts. It's a story we can understand because most of us have gone out and sowed some seed. You might have been in the lawn. You know, you go out, you sow the seed in the lawn, some grows, some doesn't, the birds get some, the weeds choke out some. It's a story we understand because it's an earthly story. Now, the first point is, this is not an earthly story. Because the vast majority of it occurs after death. So, on that point, it fails one of the tests of a parable. The other test of a parable is that it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That is to say that the things you see in the story represent something else. Again, the story of the, the, the sower with the seed. We're told by Jesus himself that the sower is the, is the son of God. That the seed is the word of God. That the field is the world. That the soil is the hearts of men. So for this to be a parable, it means that the rich man is not the rich man, he's something else. That Lazarus is not a beggar, he's something else. And that heaven is not heaven, it's something else. And hell is not hell because it's something else. And on that test, this story fails to be a parable. Because it's not representing something else. It is a warning story that represents itself. So on that test... <coughs> It fails the question of a parable. There is the question of names being used in parables. That one I'll come to later. So then does this mean that this is a 
real story. That there was a real rich man and a real beggar named Lazarus. Possibly, but also not necessarily. Because a lot of the material in here is highly figurative. The, and, and really we have to ask ourselves, is it an actual event? Because that would mean then that the dead in hell can talk to the dead in heaven. And that, does that mean then that only Abraham can see the dead in hell? Uh, that's starting to get a, a little bit of a question here. So what I believe this is, this is a story which is not necessarily an actual event, but is there to teach us certain principles. And it is true in as much as what it is teaching us is true. Whether it records actual events, to be honest, I cannot tell. I've sat on that one and I've looked at it this way and I've looked at it that way. What I can say is it teaches us things that are true. And therefore... It is a moral tale, but not a parable. Now, the question about names. People say, well, this can't be a parable because it mentions a name. And no parable mentions names, real names. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 23 verse 4 is most definitely a parable. And it gives not one name but two. There are two characters in that parable with given names. So that one is, is not something that you can say, oh it can't be a parable because it has a name. It must be about real people because they are given names. The importance of the name will come up in a moment. So that's the, if you like, that's the background lesson. That's the the bit that you'd get in, in, in Bible college in hermeneutics about how to understand a passage and how to look at it. What we have here now is the importance of the story. What is the importance of this story? Because this is a story, if it's not about real people, it is certainly about real situations. It is certainly a story about real problems. And it is most certainly a story about real fates and destinies. And that makes it a very, very important passage. Because hell is real. Heaven is real. And death is very, very real. Starting with verse 19. And there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Okay. We know a bit about this fellow. He was wealthy. He dressed well. And he ate well. But what's also most important about this man is what's not said about him. Nowhere does it say this is an evil man. Nowhere does it say this is a wicked man. Nowhere does it say this is a person who, who used his power and his wealth to do bad things. He was just a wealthy man. The people of Jesus' time, especially the Pharisees, would say he is rich because God has given him riches. Okay, I can, I, can, I can agree with that because God gives to each what he deems best and the, some people get more than others. This is, this is not, a, not a, uh, an illogical position to take. It's a quite a reasonably scriptural position to take that God blesses some people more than others. 
The problem is the Pharisees would have said, and God has blessed him because he is righteous. And that is where we have to differ with them. God gives all people their measure of wealth and talent and skill and ability. But he does not give it equally or according to our measurements. And how interesting is it that the Lord has now led our pastor to speak on Job, which asks this very question, why do bad things happen to good people and why do good things sometimes happen to bad people and deals with this entire pr principle coming up? Well, they, is this coincidence? I think not. So in fact, an expansion of what I'm dealing with here will be occurring in the next few weeks, hopefully, uh, as these topics are dealt with. The real parallel here is earlier on in Luke, where it speaks of the, the, the rich fool who said, I have this, I have that, I have no need of anything. And God said, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. doesn't say that that was a wicked man. It doesn't say that it was a man who did evil with the things God had given him. It says it was a man who ignored God. And this is the situation of the rich man here. There are those who, who will criticise him, but it doesn't say he did anything particularly evil. He was a rich man who dressed well and ate well. I could find you hundreds of them, thousands of them through Melbourne. It's not the question of their money or their clothes or their food. It's the question of what do they do with God. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. Now this is an interesting thing here because he was laid at the rich man's gate. Now if you're a beggar, that's a good spot. There's going to be a lot of rich people walking to and from the rich man's gate. It was a prime location to beg at. If the rich man had been evil, he would have chased Lazarus away. He would have got him thrown away. He would have said, no, you can't stay there. But he didn't. His, he, he laid at, at the rich man's gate full of sores, but his name, and this is where it gets interesting, his name was Lazarus. Now, please do not confuse him with another, another Lazarus. There are two Lazaruses in the, New, in the New Testament. The other one we will get to later on, probably several months down the track. His name means God has helped or God is helper. And that marks the difference between the rich man and Lazarus. The name is important. Because the name marks him as someone who trusted in God. Not someone who trusted in their money or their power or their position. And you might say, well, he trusted in God. Well, what did God do for him? That is because we look with earthly eyes on earthly scenes. This was a person, I don't know whether he was a beggar because he was ill, perhaps, Remember, there's no social service here. There's no Centrelink here. If you get ill and there's no family to look after you, you beg. That was it. So he did what he could and begged. He was laid at the rich man's gate full of sores and desired to be fed with the crumbs which fed, fell from the rich man's table. Now... This is not the only time that expression is used. Can you think of the other time when the expression the crumbs are used? It's used when a woman asks help from Christ for her daughter. 
And he says, but you don't take the children's food and feed it to the dogs. And she says, yes, but the dogs get the crumbs. This is what he wanted, the crumbs. Now, what do we mean the crumbs? Well, you need to understand how they ate in, the, in, in, in Palestine. You used bread not just to eat but to scoop up the food. And you'd tear off a bit and you'd scoop it up and sometimes the, the food would actually be poured into the bread and you'd eat it. So there were always leftover bits of bread. And sometimes we're talking about quite sizable bits. When we speak of crumbs, we don't mean the, the, the little bits that come when you slice the bread. What we mean is the chunks of bread that were left. And frequently, if you were poor, you'd save until the next meal. If you were rich, you'd just throw them out. Where would they be thrown? Well, sometimes the beggar got them. These are the leftovers he's talking about. He desired to be fed with the rich man's leftovers. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. This is, this is interesting. Because what did that mean? Well, the question of whether that was a good thing or a bad thing is really not, a, not that relevant at this point. Did that mean that the dogs were picking on him, were giving him a hard time? Does that mean that that was the only relief he had, was that the dogs would lick him? Possibly. But the important thing here is that to the Pharisees, this made him unclean. It made him, in their eyes, not able to be, have communion with God because he was unclean, because he'd had contact with the dogs. He was therefore, in the eyes of the Pharisees, doubly condemned. He was poor, so God must hate him. He was diseased, so God must really hate him. And he was licked by dogs, so he was unclean as well. He was poor and defiled in their sight. But this is the, the position of everyone who comes before a holy God, that they are poor and diseased and defiled. The difference was Lazarus knew it. Lazarus understood it and called out for God to help him. Hence his name, God helps. Now, you'll remember, if you listen, if you recall the last time I spoke, that back in verse 16 of this chapter, there is a reference to the law and the prophets. And I said that that was an interesting expression because that ex a similar expression, Moses and the prophets, comes at the end of this story. I've also mentioned it a few times that when you look for the key point in a passage of scripture that's been written by these people who think slightly differently the way we do, it's found in the middle. And if you take that expression in verse 16, the law and the prophets, then go to the end of the chapter, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, and you look in the middle for the key point, the key issue here, we come to verse 22. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom and the rich man died, also died and was buried. That was the whole, that was the key issue. This was the turning point. This was the spot where it all, where it all comes together. They, they write their stories like going up a hill and then there's a point and it all comes 
changes from there. This is the what they call the game changer. This is the whole point where everything gets different. And it came to pass that the beggar died. They both died. Lazarus died. And it mentions that the angels came, took his soul to heaven. It mentions that the rich man died and was buried. It doesn't talk about Lazarus' burial. Did he even have one? Do you know what happened to a beggar who died on the streets? If he had no family to bury him, the equivalent of the garbage collectors would come along and they would take the body. Sometimes it would go to a communal burial ground. You know what they do with a diseased body that they picked up? They take it down to the valley of Gehenna, the city rubbish dump. And there, one, two, on the rubbish dump. That's what happened to Lazarus' body, I think, because there's no mention of a burial. He died and his body was thrown on the rubbish dump. This spot in the valley of Gehenna was Jerusalem's garbage disposal. All the rubbish was thrown there. Dead animals, waste from the street, people's rubbish. And as so happens in a lot of these places, it would catch a light. And it would smolder there for days and weeks. That's why it was used as a picture of hell. A place of rubbish, refuse and smouldering fires. It's not a very pretty end for somebody. No family, no friends. Body thrown on a rubbish dump. What about the rich man? Well, he would have got a great funeral. There would have been professional mourners. There would have been weeping and wailing. He would have had a, a, a beautiful embalming and he would have been buried in a family tomb. There's a story about uh, two Jewish gentlemen who were watching a, uh, a funeral go past. And uh, one elbows the other and says, you know, that's, that's Solomon's funeral. So they stand there as very respectful as they watch the funeral go past. And there's a beautiful mahogany casket carried in a Rolls Royce, piled high with lovely flowers. One turns to the other and looks at the, the funeral and says, Ah, that's really living. No, it's not, it's really dying. He died. And he was buried. For all his money, he could not put off the hour of his death. There is no way to put that off. No matter how much money you have, you cannot buy off the rider on the pale horse. He stops for no man. In Hebrews... It says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. In Romans, it says that death passed upon all men. Death is something that we need to realise is around us. And that's why it's the key issue here. It's why it's the key verse. It's why it's the central pivotal verse here. Because all will one day die. There's a, a story about a rich Arabian man. And one day his servant came into him and said, very upset, and said, Master, uh, I, I saw death in the marketplace. And she looked at me so strangely. I'm certain that she's come for me. Can I, can I borrow a horse and run from here? And the, the master, who, who was very fond of the servant, said, take the best horse, go. Where are you going to go? And he said, I'm, I'm going 
to, to live with my cousin who lives in an alley in Baghdad and I'll be far away from here by tonight. So the master said, go. And after a while, the rich man thought, I've never seen death. So his curiosity got the better of him and he went down to the marketplace and it says that death looked like an old woman in a black robe. And he went to her and said, are you death? She said, I am. He said, well, why did you scare my servant? He's a good man. You gave him an awful fright. She said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to startle him. It's just I was so surprised to see him here. You see, I have an appointment with him tonight in an alley in Baghdad. You can't escape death. The rich man died and so did Lazarus. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom and the rich man also died and was buried and in hell he lifted up his eyes. Abraham's bosom. What does that mean, Abraham's bosom? It's a, a picture or an illustration that comes from a, a Middle Eastern feast. And we'll find this again referenced when it talks about the Last Supper. Now, it, it sounds strange, but, but Julie and I got a, uh, a little illustration of this in one sort of way. Just a couple of days ago, I'd, I'd come in and we have a, a big um, lounge thing in one corner. And my feet were a little bit sore and she said, come on, just, just lie down here and put your feet up. So she was on one side of it and, and I was on the other side and I was sort of laying down half next to her, sort of on a, on a cushion, sort of beside her but very close to her. And that's what it means, the, the description is here. It's like an, a, an, a Middle Eastern feast where it wasn't, you didn't sit at tables and chairs, you, you lie down on, on the floor on cushions. And the position of honour, the number one spot, was to stretch out with your head on the, and being on the right-hand side near to the, the right hand of the, the master of the feast. And so I was, in fact, lying down there, and, and Julie was lying this and I was lying that, and it was quite comfortable and quite pleasant. And I was talking to her about this, this particular situation and I said uh, this was also when when uh, James and John said to Jesus that they wanted to be one on the right hand and one on the left because the number one spot was on the right hand the number two spot was on the left the number three was on the right hand of the right hand and the number four was on the left hand of the left hand if you see how it worked out so this was a picture of Lazarus being in the number one spot of a Middle Eastern feast conducted by Abraham, the father of the Jews. The number one guy, the head of the family. And here was, here was Lazarus in the number one position. He was in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man is in hell and he lifts up his eyes being in torments and he sees Abraham afar off. Afar off. Long way away. Now how much of this is figurative and how much of this is literal, I cannot say. Can the dead call out to those in heaven? I don't think so. Remember also that we are told that when Christ died, he led captivity captive. And I believe that that is a, quite likely a reference to him going down to this place and removing the righteous dead and taking them with him to heaven. 
It's also, we're also told that hell hath enlarged herself. Well, to enlarge, you have to remove something else and has the abode of the unsaved dead expanded now to cover the area where the righteous dead used to be. I'm not sure. That is, that is something for further study and looking at, but it does bear a thought that that's what's happened. So what is this position that the rich man is in? He hasn't been judged. He has, why is he here? The best illustration I can find for it is what we call in our society remand. Okay? Now, for those who haven't had the acquaintance with the criminal justice system, if you are arrested and you cannot be bailed, you are placed in remand. This place looks like a, a hotel with really small windows down near Swanson Street. And it's like a jail, but it's not. You haven't gone to trial, you haven't been convicted, but you're still virtually in jail. It's a holding area, but it's not that pleasant. It's not like a motel. You're still locked up. You're still, you know, and in fact, the time you spend there, if you are convicted, is taken off your sentence because it's considered that much of a punishment. But you're not there to be punished. You're there because you can't be let out. That's what the position these people are in. They have not yet been judged. They have not appeared before their maker. But they're not being let out either. And they are suffering. We're told that he says he's in flame. Yeah. But there's another suffering that's going on here. And that suffering is the fact that they realise what's coming. And they still have their faculties, their memories, their feelings. What do you think the rich man was remembering? What do you think he was remembering in this, in this time of suffering? Do you think he was remembering the good things that happened? Do you think he was remembering the happy times? Did he go to his happy place? I think he was remembering every time he went to synagogue and heard the scriptures preached to him. Every time that the, that the, the rabbi stood up and told him what God required of him and he ignored it. I think that's what he was remembering. He was remembering every opportunity he had to get right with God and didn't take it. That's what he was remembering. And he being and he and in hell he lift up his eyes being in torments and sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. There are many things in the abode of the dead. There are certain things that are not there. He said, have mercy on me. There's no mercy. There's no relief. There's no change. Tormented in this flame. A few years ago, in fact, quite a few years ago, back in the days when they could do these things without health and safety people jumping up and down, I had a science teacher. And this science teacher was working with sulphur. And he was demonstrating that sulphur exists in several different forms. So he got a bowl of sulphur in one particular structure. And he said, we're going to melt it. And as it crystallises, you'll find it's formed a separate structure. And we were looking at them under the microscope and we could see the different structures. Okay. 
So he melts the sulfur very carefully, but it got a little bit hot and it caught a light. And he said, because he wanted to demonstrate this, he said, quick, turn the lights out. Okay, he turned the lights out. Sulfur burns with a bluey red flame and gives off virtually no light. It's dark. It's just just a, a, a very dull glow that comes from it. But that's not the only thing that sulfur does. Sulfur, when it burns, forms sulfur trioxide. Goes into the air. And when sulfur trioxide meets anything damp, it turns to sulfuric acid. Anything damp, like the moisture in your eyes, like the moisture in your nose, like the moisture in your throat and your lungs. We only got a couple of whiffs before he put it out and got some fresh air in, but it's like the very air is burning. Have mercy on me, for I am tormented in this flame. Even the air in hell. But Abraham said, Son, remember. They are are two of the the most terrible uh, words to have come upon someone to say, Son, remember. Remember all the chances you had. Remember all the opportunities you had. That thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. Now, that word comforted, that's an interesting word. He is comforted. The word is also translated sometimes as a noun, the comforter. It's the same word that's used to refer to the Holy Spirit. And it means, when it's referred to the the Holy Spirit, it's the type of speech that means someone who comes alongside you, someone who draws near to you, okay, who comforts you. But this, it's the opposite side of speech. It's not someone who does it, it's done you are, it's done for you. In other words, it's Lazarus, come closer. Lazarus is comforted. Come over here. Come close. That is the idea of comfort. Lazarus is called close to Father Abraham. But what does it say of the rich man? He sees Abraham afar off, a long way away. It also says that there is a great gulf between the two. The gulf, in verse 26, is fixed. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that they which would pass from hence to you cannot... Neither can they pass to us that would come from them. There's no travel between heaven and hell. That's why it took the Son of God to go down there and lead captivity captive. It's interesting now, verse 27. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they come into this place of torment. The rich man didn't want anyone to join him. And and I give him full marks for that. Yep. He didn't want anyone else in that miserable position. 
And you know, this marks the great difference between man and Satan. People in hell don't want company. They don't want anyone else to go through that. Satan, on the other hand, seeks to drag every living creature he can down there with him. He wants to see you suffer with him. Won't make his time any more pleasant, except that he can rejoice in his heart that someone else has to suffer with him. They speak of the evil and the depravity of man. I think that shows the evil and depravity of Satan, that he wants people to suffer with him. Five brethren. And he knew where they were headed because he knew what his brothers were like. Send Lazarus. Testify to them. It is Abraham himself speaking here who gives the final warning to the Pharisees who are listening to this story. For he says, and Abraham saith unto them, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The law and the prophets. Moses and the prophets. They have everything they need to know in the scriptures they read every Sabbath. Let them hear that. Let them read Isaiah 53. Let them read the Psalms. Let them read the messages that say, what does my God require of me? And it'll tell you. Just read it. Verse 30, he says, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, well, then they'll repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead, and one did rise from the dead, and they were still not persuaded. You ever wondered why God doesn't do big, showy miracles? You know... Why, why doesn't God write the gospel in, in, in words of fire in the sky so that people could see it? Because it wouldn't make any difference. If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, if they will not listen to the word of God, they will not be persuaded even though we went out into the cemetery and raised the dead. They still won't listen. If Luke 15, Luke 15 tells us about the mercy of God, if Luke 15 tells us about the love of God, Luke 15 tells us about the care and the patience and the, the desire to see people saved from God's point of view, then Luke 16 tells us of his righteous indignation and is a prelude to Romans chapter 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. If the story of the prodigal son is there to invite sinners to come to Christ, then the story of the rich man and Lazarus is to warn what happens if you do not take that choice. To gain the world and lose your soul is an eternal and really poor bargain. Past death, this story tells us, knowledge, feeling, seeing, reason, the senses, all still exist. And they will either aid our bliss and happiness or they will increase our torment. Yeah. We will, people will either be in heaven 
recalling how the times God led them and directed and protected and guided them and all the things he did for them and, and rejoicing in that and being able to look back over their lives and say, wow, I didn't realise how God protected me in that situation. Or look back and say, I'm so glad that God was merciful to me there and, and didn't give me what I deserved. Oh, I'm so, so wonderful. It's so great to be able to look back at that and say, here was God at work in people's lives. Or they will look back on their lives at every missed opportunity, every track they threw away, every sermon they slept through, every message that they ignored. You know, it says that in, that in hell, not only does the flame die not, but the worm doesn't either. And there are some who say that worm is not a real wiggly one. It's the worm of your conscience reminding you of every time you could have got saved and didn't do it. That that worm will chew and chew and chew away forever. Well, if the, if the story of the of the prodigal son makes you feel warm and fuzzy, this should make you feel cold and prickly because this is not a pleasant story. Heaven and hell are real. Eternal destinies do not depend on what we own but on who owns us. That was the problem that the Pharisees had. That they were covetous, they desired things and they ended up depending on what they owned and what they did instead of who owned them and who had done things for them. If people will not respond to the word of God, nothing will convince them. The story of the rich man and Lazarus. Why isn't it a parable? Because it's telling you the truth. Plain, unvarnished, unadorned. It's telling you like it is. The truth of the rich man and Lazarus is simple. There is a heaven to gain. There is a hell to shun. And there's a grave that is waiting One last little illustration. An evangelist told me once how he went to, he was speaking through America. And in one church that he, he was, where he was preaching, one of the, he stayed at the house of one of the deacons. And this deacon owned a funeral parlour. Now if you've ever worked with people in that sort of business, they develop a bit of a sense of humour because you have to working in that line of business. You have to find a way to, to, to guard yourself. And so this guy, he says, you want to have the, the tour of the funeral parlour? So he, he took the evangelist down to the funeral parlour and gave him the, the full tour and said, you know, see the suits, the ones without the backs? Yeah, you know, you don't want to try one of those on? He said, no, no, I don't want to try one of those on. He said, this is the, the number one coffin. It's satin light. It's soft. You want to hop in and try to just see how it feels? No, 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 no. no. I've got no interest in, 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 in getting in just to see how the, the coffin feels. It's really soft. It's really comfortable. And then the funeral director got a little bit Thoughtful, and he said, you know, these coffins here, they're not for dead people. They're not. I certainly hope they would be. He says, no, they're actually for live people. Because they're walking around out there through this big city and they have no idea that I have their coffin already built, already waiting for them. These coffins are for live people. They just don't know it yet. And the, the uh, 
evangelist thought, hey, that's good. Get the bit of paper out. I like this. This is, this is going in a sermon illustration. And so he, he went on his way and he said about three weeks later, he got a call from the pastor of the church. And as soon as he heard him on the phone, he said he got that sinking feeling. He said, you know that guy you stayed with, the deacon? He had a heart attack and died. We buried him in that number one coffin. Yeah. Coffins are for life, people. They just don't know it yet. This is the message of the rich man and Lazarus. There's a heaven to gain. There's a hell to shun and there is a grave that is waiting. Where are we headed? Where are our friends headed? Where are our families headed? Who's going to tell them if we don't? Who is going to tell them of the law and the prophets? Who is going to say that you've offended a holy and righteous God? And who's going to say there's a way out if we don't? That is the message of the rich man and Lazarus. That's the important thing to take away. This is a story which should resonate every day in our lives. It should be something that we carry with us when we see people and we talk to them. And it came to pass that they died, the both of them. Brethren, this is serious business. This is a serious topic. And there are serious eternal consequences to who we talk to and how we live. And if perchance you have come into this, this church, and if this is, it might be the first time the message has got through to you, if today you've realised for the first time that you are not right with God, and the things that you've done are going to one day demand an accounting. And if you realise now for the very first time that this is serious business and you need to get right with God this day, do not leave this room without speaking to someone. Speak to me. Speak to our pastor. And get yourself right with God today. And change the direction. And spend your time with Lazarus and not with the rich man.